0: Once again in the book of Acts and We'll be looking at Acts chapter 9 Verses 19 to 31 Acts 9, 19 to 31 Now for several days He was with the disciples Who were at Damascus And immediately He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing Him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not He who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength in confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus By proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night, so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It Continued to increase. Please pray with me. Lord, that's what we want for our church and for your gospel. We want to continue to increase, to grow in the fear of the Lord and in comfort and the Holy Spirit. And we want your gospel to continue to expand uh, through our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, Lord, through this city. Lord, through the regions, Lord, we want to reach unreached people groups. And and we know that, of course, you can do all that you set your mind to and that you direct us. And so we ask that you would direct us, that it would be your will to continue to save souls. Even those who are immensely hardened and blind to the truth, like even Saul was. Lord, we know that you have the power to change the leopard spots, and to melt the heart of stone, and we pray that you would continue to do so, even, even this morning, if there's anyone here who is yet to truly be born again, that today would be the day of new birth. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Now, this this passage that we're reading, as you picked up on, is really the second part of Paul's transformation from being a persecutor of Jesus Christ and his church to becoming a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And last week we saw how Saul was on his way to Damascus hunting down with vicious hostility in his heart, breathing out murder against the Christians when he was confronted by Christ on his way to Damascus and humbly blinded. So that he would realize that that was his actual spiritual condition. That he was blind to the truth. And so he was humbly led into Damascus by his friends. And he remained in that blind state for days until Ananias came to him, laid hands on him, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, Saul of Tarsus was a completely transformed individual. As he describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And, and, and this point, uh, the point of this uh, second portion of Paul's transformation, or Saul's transformation, who becomes Paul, is really to highlight this 180 degree change that has taken place within this man. And it's almost like somebody's hitting reverse on the remote control, reversing everything that had just taken place over the previous days. So, for instance, chapter nine begins, or at least this section, begins with Saul in Damascus. He's with the disciples, the disciples that he was hunting for in order to bring them to prison. So now he's with the disciples who had run from Jerusalem to Damascus fleeing him, and now in verses 23 and 24, Saul then flees from Damascus back to Jerusalem because of proclaiming Christ. The situation is reversed. And then in 26 through 30, when Saul arrives in Jerusalem, he seeks to join the disciples. But he can't because he had previously hunted them down. And they don't believe he's truly a believer until Barnabas introduces himself. To the apostles, and from that point on, he begins to preach to the disciples there in Jerusalem, and he goes about freely proclaiming Christ, and even disputing. It says with the Hellenists. Now you might recall that it was the Hellenists who were disputing with Stephen earlier in the book of Acts, which led Paul, uh, Saul, to eventually kill Stephen or have him killed. Now it's the Hellenists who want to kill Saul. And the point is that everything in Saul's life has been completely turned on its head. So let's look at how this gets developed, beginning in verses 19 through 22. Now, notice that in verse 21, it demonstrates this, this reversal. It, the, the, the people in Damascus ask, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them down before the chief priests. I mean, even they're shocked. This is a complete reversal of what had happened. After being saved and finding himself with the disciples that he was hunting down, he then immediately leaves them, it says. And he begins to proclaim Christ. Again, the reason he was hunting down the disciples. And because of the strength of his preaching, he himself becomes hunted by the Jews. So he has to flee from Damascus to keep from being murdered, just as Stephen had been by him. And it's, it's honestly, it's really hard to imagine what the shock of this would have been like. I mean, the closest equivalent I could think of would be if, if Hillary Clinton became Donald Trump's greatest supporter in this next election. I mean, you just the last person you would ever expect. To preach Christ was Saul of Tarsus. A complete reversal has taken place. And the reality is seen in his efforts to prove to the Jews that Jesus was in fact, quote, the Son of God. You see this in verses 20 and verse 22. And, and the word prove in verse 22 literally means to, to piece together. Like uh, the development of a, course ca- a court case. Right? When the attorneys come in. To, to, to a trial, they have all the evidence before them that they want as airtight as possible. And it was because he confounded the Jews. They, they couldn't argue against him. He was persuasively demonstrating that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And, and he was so good that they, that they became hostile towards him. And notice that Saul did not even diminish at this point in his passion for Christ. This wasn't just some flash in the pan conversion, some emotional high. He, he heard a really good song or he watched an inspiring movie and he decides he's going to change his life. A mountaintop experience, we might call it. No, this was this was a radical transformation down into the core of his being. Right? He wasn't like the person in Jesus' parable, the seeds. He wasn't like the seed that was sown on the rocky ground who hear the word and they they immediately receive it with joy. But then when trials come or when the the temptation to follow riches or otherworldly lusts grab them and choke the seed, they only endure for a while and then immediately fall away. Saul, rather, was like the seed that was sown on the ground the good soil that bears fruit thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. Like it was obvious, this man didn't just have a change of opinion; his very being had been transformed. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't marked by him receiving a halo. He didn't all of a sudden grow wings. Like the, the reality of his transformation was seen in what he said and what he did, just like. The reality of our transformation, if we're born again, is going to be seen in how we talk, the choices that we make. And I would say that the predominant heresy in the American church today is the idea that a person can be a believer and and absolutely no change in their life is necessary. They They just need to believe that God loves them and that he wants to forgive them for their sins. And if they just believe that truth, they're good. They'll go to heaven. No change is really necessary. Now, it may be true as far as God goes that he loves you and desires to forgive you and wants to be your friend and father. But it's not true as we are concerned. There there is there is no true salvation if there is no repentance in our life. Repentance is the fruit of somebody being born again. Because. The very nature of regeneration demands repentance from sin. When a person's heart is transformed, everything about them is going to be changed. Because the Holy Spirit will make sure it changes. Because when they're born again, they're brought from spiritual death to life. They, They cease seeking their own will, and now they want to seek God's will. They care far more about obeying God than getting what they want. They stop worshiping themselves, and instead they worship God, seeking to love Him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, all their strength. The point is, with all their being, not just in the way they think, it's not just about believing right doctrine, believing in God, believing in Jesus. It is about those things, but it's also about loving Him, having your affections more desirous of what pleases Him than what the world delights in. And it's also in, seen in one's actions, the, the choices you make are very different. Just see it in the life of Saul. Total reversal that was obvious. But this American heresy, which is commonly called easy believism, suggests that calls to repentance are legalistic because they, they, they're a works righteousness. Because you're adding repentance as a work to salvation. But they forget what the Apostle James says. That faith without works is it's dead. It's not real, is the point. Just, just imagine if a person goes to a dermatologist because they have some dreaded skin infection or disease like leprosy. And they and they, and they go to the, the physician and he prescribes them some medication and, and he and he says, Here you go, you're healed. And the person looks down at their skin and says, It doesn't look like it. And they said, just trust the medication. They say, okay. You come back a year later, still nothing's changed. The doctor says, well, you just have to believe in the medication. Well, something's wrong, right? Either the person didn't take the medication, or they didn't follow the instructions, or the medication doesn't work. Like, something's wrong. If there's no change, there's no change. And the same is true with Christians, Right? If there's no change, they're not really Christians. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the soul's greatest medication. Again, recognize a person, when they come into this world, is spiritually dead on account of sin. And then they become alive. They were self worshippers, now they worship God. There's going to be change. If there's no change, there's no change. They're still dead, is the point. A person goes from blind to seeing, from despair to hope, from gloom to joy, from bitterness to love. And they change not because of their discipline, not because they just got some new insight, but because the Holy Spirit, God himself, has, has come into their life and transformed their heart. It's a miracle that takes place. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not just a change in thinking. It's a miracle. You can't bring it about on your own. Only God can do it. And you see that the, the tremendous blessing in this. That repentance is necessary because it allows us to see if our salvation is real before it's really going to matter. Because there's going to be many people on that day, Matthew 7, 21, who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it will be too late. And so the Lord tells us what to know. That we can be certain. Absolutely certain that we really are believers. That we really are in Christ. He says, is there repentance? Is there repentance in your life? If there's not repentance, you're probably not saved. Or there's a major problem nonetheless. But probably you're not saved. From the very beginning, when the gospel was preached by the apostles, what they preached was the necessities of both repent and believe. So let's just look at it. Turn just a couple of pages back to Acts chapter 2, where we first see the gospel being proclaimed. Acts 2.37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Right? They realize they're sinners in need of salvation. They need to be forgiven. They need to be reconciled to God. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? The emphasis there is you need to repent, brothers. And then when Peter preached to the Jews in Solomon's Portico in Acts chapter 3, the next chapter, he tells them in verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Right? How can they know their sins are blotted out? Repentance. Acts 11. When the disciples hear that the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit also, notice how they describe this phenomenon in Acts 11:18. 18. He says, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Like they define salvation as repentance, because that's what people see, that's what we see in our own life, that's what other people see in our life. That's the evidence, right? So we we will, we choose to get baptized to show that we really do want to follow Christ. But the evidence isn't just in that baptism; it's it's the repentance that follows it, that accompanies it. Like there should be no doubt in anybody's mind if they're a believer or not. If in and, and, because, and And there should be no doubt in our minds if a person's a believer. Because they should be repentant. They should be a different person from what they once were. If that miracle actually happened. In in Acts 26, when Paul shares his testimony with King Agrippa, he then informs us what Christ specifically called him to do when he was confronted on the Damascus road. He says in Acts 26, verse 15. sorry. Actually, verse 18, he says, I'm sending you to open their eyes, speaking of the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Jesus Christ's words. That's the commission he told Paul, go preach repentance so that they can receive forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, if there's no repentance, there is no forgiveness. And he wasn't just called to give some abstract hope that people could possibly be saved, but to preach a gospel that actually supernaturally transforms people, brings them from death to life. Again, it's a miracle. Just consider how Peter describes the miracle of salvation in 1 Peter 1. Go ahead and flip there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 22. He describes the Christian's repentance and then the work of the word that they heard which brought about that repentance. So it's almost like he's working backwards. He says this in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you can do this because you have been born again, right? What brought about this new birth? Not of the perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, right? they They heard, the word preached, the gospel preached, it entered their ears and it stuck their heart. They were pierced to the heart and it implanted a seed of new life in them. And when the Holy Spirit plants a seed of new life, it will bring forth life. Nothing can resist the Holy Spirit. It caused them to be born again and their hearts were permanently transformed. Just like when a woman gets pregnant, pregnant, the the effects are immediately obvious, or well, not immediately, but they're eventually obvious within a year. right? If there's no child after nine months, something happened. either they weren't really pregnant or the child passed away. Now I know my wife has been pregnant, not because a doctor told me so, but because I have four boys in my house that came from someplace. Right? The evidence is there. When, when a child is born, something brought about that life. Like there will be evidence of the life is the point. As the blind man said in John 9, when, when the Pharisees say that, that Christ is a sinner, he says, whether, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Right? The evidence is there. This guy's got Power. He transforms people. But if Jesus said, you can see now and the blind man can't see, the blind man hadn't been healed. There's a transformation is the point. The power of Christ is seen in real transformation. And this is seen, of course, in Saul's life. Look at verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now recall that when Saul first came to Damascus, again, he was completely dependent upon the other angry Jews who were with him to lead him by the hand into Damascus. He didn't even enter on his own power. And likewise, he didn't leave on his own power here. Again, there's a reversal. He needs to be let down in a basket by the disciples to escape. And Paul actually refers to this incident in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But he does so as evidence of his weakness. He says there in 2 Corinthians 11, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He says in verse 32, At Damascus... The governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, Paul brings it up here because for him, this was a humiliating experience. He had to tuck tail and run. He had to flee for his life in, an, in a very ignominious fashion. And there are two principles that we can learn from this. That I think are important for us to consider. The first is that God's priority in your life, Christian, is not your honor. It's not that you would be honored. It's that you would do his will. And sometimes he's going to call you to do things that will be absolutely humiliating. 1 Peter two twenty one. Peter says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And did Christ receive honor in this life? He was born in a stable, raised in Nazareth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Isaiah describes Him as a man who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one whom Men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That that word esteemed there means he was a zero in our eyes. He was worthless. And following Christ for us will also cost us honor, respect, in some cases, prestige. And we need to love Christ enough to flee if that means what's going if that's what's going to bring him the most honor and glory in a situation. We may even risk being labeled as a coward for choosing to submit to him and flee rather than to stand and fight. And this will test again whether we really love the glory that comes from man more or the glory that comes from God. Right? If if the only thing that's driving us is wanting to maintain our reputation, we're going to be broken. And we'll fail. In fact, one of the ways communists in Romania broke some pastors was by simply spreading lies to their congregations, telling their congregation that, hey, we have evidence that this man's committed adultery or some other horrific sin. And they were so terrified that people would actually believe the lies, they, they were broken. And they did whatever the communists asked them to do. They had, they had more of a love for their reputation than they did... To be faithful to Christ. And to the Christian, the principle that drives our decisions is not what's going to most impress men. What's going to make people think that I'm really godly. That's not what drives our decisions. What drives our decisions is, God, what is it that you want me to do? According to your word, informed, of course, by his word, and then submitted to with humility. Humility. And sometimes it may be to humiliatingly flee, like Paul did, rather than to die. And sometimes it will mean to die. We'll need wisdom in those situations. I would say John Payton is probably the the most courageous Christian, at least arguably the most courageous Christian since the Apostle Paul. Many of you know him. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides a couple centuries ago called Vanuatu today. And he went there to to minister the gospel to cannibals. And even after losing his wife and infant son, shortly after arriving as a missionary there, he stayed on that island for years, even though almost daily his life was threatened. And he writes about it in his autobiography. He didn't go home. He stayed and he plotted and he preached to hard-hearted and violent men for four years. Until one day, the whole island of natives was stirred up against him in anger, seeking his life, and he lost everything. And then God providentially provided a means of escape, and he was convinced it was time for him to leave. And he writes about this decision in his autobiography. He says Some unsophisticated souls who read these pages will be astonished to learn, but others who know more of the heartless selfishness of human creatures will be quite prepared to hear that my leaving Tana was not a little criticized. And a great deal of nonsense was written, even in church magazines, about the breaking up of the mission. All such criticism came, of course, from men who were themselves destitute of sympathy and who probably never endured a paying for Jesus in their comfortable lives. Conscious that I had, to the last inch of my life, tried to do my duty, I left all results in the hands of my only Lord and all the criticisms to his unerring judgment. Hard things also were occasionally spoken to my face. One dear friend, for instance, said, you should not have left. You should have stood at the post of duty till you fell. It would have been more to your honor and better for the cause of the mission had you been killed at the post of duty like the Gordons and others. I replied, I regard it as a greater honor to live and work for Jesus than to be a self-made martyr. God knows that I did not refuse to die. For I stood at the post of duty amid difficulty and danger till all hope had fled, till everything was lost, until God, in answer to prayer, sent a means of escape. I left with a clear conscience, knowing that in doing so, I was following God's leading and serving the mission too." To have remained longer would have been to incur the guilt of self-murder in the sight of God. And he actually goes on to say, explain actually how in then leaving, God opened up an opportunity for him to spread, really stir up a missionary movement, particularly amongst the Australians. And shortly within a decade, a massive missionary movement took place because of his itinerant ministry that he wouldn't have been doing, doing if he stayed on Tana. And not only that, this is... Extra. He goes back to another island. That island receives the gospel abundantly, and some of those natives go back to the island he was on before, Tanna, and then the people on Tanna get saved. Like, it wasn't over. But Peyton had no way of knowing that. And he had to know at this time, I've got to accept fleeing as his will and trust him for the results. And no doubt this was the same conviction that led Saul to eventually leave Damascus. In the words of David Hodges, sometimes you've got to go to be a man. This brings us to verse 26. It says that when Saul came to Jerusalem, the apostles were afraid of him and would not listen to him until Barnabas assured them of Saul's ministry in Damascus. And this is quite a statement about Barnabas. Right? Earlier in Acts chapter 4, we saw how his generosity inspired the whole church to become generous. Right? He sells them lands and gives it so that the poor can be cared for, and then all of a sudden other people start doing it. Even Ananias and Sapphira get involved in the act. And here we see that he's not only generous, but he's courageous. Now, if he would have held back, he would have held back in fear like the other. Disciples and apostles. If he would have held back like them. There would have been no linkage between the ministry of Saul. Who becomes Paul. And the other apostles. There would have been a a massive rift in their ministries. And also Saul wouldn't have had any ministry in Jerusalem. It was only until Barnabas had the courage to. To go to Saul and then bring Saul to the apostles. That that opportunity could have happened. And it's because it happened. That's what allowed the church to just burst forth with tremendous growth. It took courage. In Galatians Paul says that he, he specifically went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. But when he was there the only apostles they actually met were Peter and James the Lord's brother. He doesn't explain why, but it could be because all the other ten were too afraid. But the result of the meeting was that Saul's ministry exploded in Jerusalem. It had already exploded in Damascus, and now he has an impact in Jerusalem. Verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But of course, the result of this is that now he's the one targeted. Previously he was hunting down Christians in Jerusalem. Now he's the one that's being targeted as a Christian. And so when the disciples hear of this, again Paul has to flee. And he submits to them and allows them to send him off to Tarsus in verse 30. And then the upshot of course is this of this is that the church is strengthened. That the church continues to be strengthened, it continues to grow through all of this. Now, again, we have to remember the context. It's it's so easy to get just so mesmerized by the glory of what's happened to Saul. This massive radical transformation that we forget the context. People have died. Blood had been shed. There had been massive hostility amongst the church. People have been imprisoned, there have been death threats, anger, violence. But the church continues to grow. And because, and this is the point, God has the power to make sure it grows. Just like when God plants the seed of His Word in our hearts, it will bring forth fruit in repentance. Likewise, when He plants a church, a true church will grow. Right? Just as individuals will grow, the church will grow. God is making sure this church is growing despite. All the different opposition that it's facing. God has the power to transform the hardest hearts. Right, to such an extent that, that they can go from the worst of people to being the best. They can go from being fiercely hostile to Christianity to being the most ardent defenders of Christianity. One of my favorite people in history was John Newton. He was a former blasphemer, blasphemer, he describes himself. He became a slave trader of all things. But in God's providence, he was not only saved, but he became one of the single greatest forces to breaking the back of slavery in both Great Britain and the United States. He also became one of the greatest shepherds of men in history. He counseled and advised men like William Wilberforce, who was the political Force behind the breaking of slavery in England. He canceled pastors such as Charles Simeon and John Wesley. They came to him for counsel. Missionaries such as William Carey and Henry Martin continually had correspondence with him. And he also cared for severely depressed poets like William Cooper. And personally, I would consider him one of my best friends. Because during some of the darkest seasons of my life, Letters that he had written to people hundreds of years ago, other people, so comforted and encouraged me during those periods. I've I've never read any book that has been so helpful besides that book. His influence is truly incalculable, as evidenced by impenning the most well-known sentences in the English language, I imagine, Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would give us such clarity as Newton had, as Saul had, that the repentance in our life would be obvious. And Lord, if it's not, That You would make it clear to every person here where they stand before You. If they've truly experienced Your transforming grace or if it's just appreciating Christianity, liking people in church, wanting the blessings that come from trying to live a good life. Lord, we don't want any person here this morning to stand before You on that day. And hear that their conversion wasn't real. So I pray that you would cause the evidence to be clear. That nobody would doubt the power of your salvation in their life. It would be evident to them and it would be evident to everybody else that knows them. Help us to be a light shining in a dark place that is Oregon. And Lord, we know for that to happen, our lives continue to need to be transformed. That we would be, live, think, and love according to Christ. Continue to work in power. That it would be evident that you are our first love. We pray these things in Christ's name.